Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lewis, do we have any friends? You can. You can. <laughs> <laughs> Alright everybody, how's it going? <laughs> Welcome back to the Hammer Factor, it's been a while Hope everybody had a good Corona vacation there First We're, of all, the pre-show was the show I think we should I wasn't I, mean, you, I, I, wasn't, I, know, but. I wasn't recording all that and we, we basically had a rebellion Of one of our cast members here So <laughs> <laughs> Can't put that on the show 2020, what an insane year it has been. Um, we're back to discuss everything from PPE to public lands. I'd like to start off by introducing my co-host, owner of Immersion Research and PPE master, John Weld, Outdoor Alliance champion, and Lewis Geltman. <laughs> I, I, I was going off the rails. I brought it back in. You got to be proud of me for that. You know. Oh, thanks, Grant. <laughs> so, what's new, guys? It's been a while. Yeah, seriously. As always, anybody listening will never know exactly how close we came to never doing this again. As as is usually the case, we take a long absence. <laughs> oh, people man. probably had a. In, in, inkling of it this time <laughs> it's been like six months it's been like it's been like fucking five years god dude, it's been I know crazy. where we left off in the ongoing drama of 2020 it doesn't matter like everything <laughs> that was going on then isn't going on now <laughs> you know what i mean so every day every day is a wednesday and every day is <laughs> crazier than the wednesday before i beg to differ I think one of the most important stories we need to talk about today is has been ongoing and progressing since we left. That's Apex Kayaks, Apex Watercraft. <laughs> what's going on? Right? I mean, that's the headline of the show, Apex. What's in the news? What's not in the news? I have not been following. There's been like other things going on in life. What is the news right at this point? Well, they're point? making fishing boats. Sick. Have they, got, have they got one out? Well, no, but it's forthcoming. Have you... They released a Kickstarter campaign. This is EJ's new venture to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about there. Post Jackson Kayak, Apex Watercraft. We really are just jumping right back in as if we never left, huh? <laughs> right. Paddle offsets will be in a minute. We'll get back to that. Oh, God. I'm picturing, I'm picturing Apex Watercraft to be like a Melrose Place type soap opera. That's how I keep it real. That's how what? I keep it entertaining for me. What? This is how I this is how I imagine Apex kayaks. This is the world you're living Pat in. Pat Keller, Pat Keller, in a twist that nobody expected, suddenly taking money from uh, the Bank of Islam, previously funding Confluence kayaks, right? Working in cahoots with Sutton Bacon, who is working to destroy the industry through a Hydrus-like network of micro trade shows with no more than five people at every show. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Something like that. It's a little bit fun. Exciting. Oh, God. On a product front, isn't it exciting to see a carbon boat manufacturer out there? I mean, who knows if it'll ever work, but it well, seems it, cool to me. It is a topic of discussion in the industry. People are discussing whether there's actually a market for an 8000 presumably an $8,000 carbon fishing kayak. Is that what the numbers are? I, I mean, how would you make a super light, you know, small production 
composite kayak with all the tooling and everything that's going to be involved with it. If they're, you know, I mean, it's going to be something. I mean, it's going to be many thousands of dollars, I would guess, right? I mean, I have no the number idea. I heard. The number I heard was eight thousand. I don't know. The Kickstarter hasn't hasn't been launched yet, so that's I guess how they're going to fund this thing. I will say that kayak fishing has been the uh, one of the saving graces of paddle sports through this whole COVID thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, essentially they shut down a lot of the boat ramps, boat docks. All these fishermen were like, "How am I going to go fishing?" So mm. it seems like there was, I mean, everybody's out of fishing kayaks in the industry. It's sold out. You know, right. They can't make them fast enough. I feel yeah, like I've heard similar things about like the bike industry, you know, like it's definitely not necessarily like the high end bikes, but like everybody's like people are buying bikes, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like maybe this will be good for the outdoor industry in some ways. There's always a silver lining. Why do you get for participation? I don't know if it'll be good for the industry. But... I'll tell you, being in the event production and media production, it is not good for this industry. Mm. <laughs> let, me, let me just assure you of that. Um, I know I told some of you guys about like the early days of this thing. Watching three months of my calendar evaporate in three days was was pretty sobering. So now, what are you doing? Uh, just kind of figured a way out of it. I think uh, we're lucky. We have a pretty broad set of expertise that, you know, we've transferred a lot of stuff to web development and online campaigns and live streaming stuff instead of some of the other things we we're doing. Well, I might picture you doing landscaping. <laughs> you know what? That that actually, I have a neighbor who's la- in like land. an in-ground pool or something with <laughs> a shovel. I have a neighbor who's landscaping, and I talked to him about it. I was like, hey, Dave, if this all goes sour for me, you got a place for me? He was like, I'll put you to work. <laughs> so, yeah, I know the feeling. So, so that was pretty good. But but outside you of know, that initial thing, it's we're, we're kind of figuring out a way to make it work here. You know, I feel like I have to bring this up, which is, you know, Billy Hearn saw this whole thing coming like sooner than just about anybody, certainly anybody I know. He like Billy called me in like January and was like, this thing is coming. And he was like, he called it like so early. And it was I mean, like all the boys in the gorge here are like, like, Gelman, you were right about this whole thing. You've been like telling me about this like like months before it happened. And I was like. All I did was listen to Billy, you know, like Billy. I picture I Billy know. having like a, 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 a like a quiver of like half a dozen apocalyptic scenarios. He's been playing over and over again for the past 20 years. But the he finally is, struck gold with this one. But the thing <laughs> is that he's not like he's Billy's not like, uh, you know, it's not like he's like like spinning them out all the time. Like it's like he's probably monitoring various apocalyptic scenarios, but he's not like, oh yeah, the world's ending tomorrow. Like this is the first time, you know, that he's called me up and been like, this is, this is going to get really gnarly. And I was like, well, I, I hope you're wrong. But then I like, you know, got some masks and went to the grocery store and bought 10 pounds of rice. And like, I'm glad I did. <laughs> Billy, Billy, Her- in essence, Billy Hearn's another example of a really, really smart guy whose life got completely sidelined by kayaking. Oh, <laughs> God, <dude. laughs> And all the potential is just gone. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a really smart guy, but I'm definitely in that camp. I mean, God, life was hijacked. Hey, dude, I got to admit, I was a super early adopter of the whole coronavirus thing because I had a shoot in California the last week of January, and I start seeing these news clips come out, and they're like, 
16 new hospitals built in 10 days in China and this and that. And I'm like, what is going on? So I went to the store, got some masks and all this kind of thing. And I wasn't so much worried about getting sick, but I was worried about them cutting flights and not being able to get home. You know, and then like, sure enough, I'm out there. So I'm like following the news the whole time I'm out there and it's just kind of escalating and escalating and escalating. And I'm just like, God, get me back home before this blows up. And then it still took it like another three weeks after I got home to blow up. But I don't know. I mean, what a crazy 2020. Yeah. Do you, you guys know anybody who's had it? Yeah. Eric Martin from uh, Wilderness Warriors. Eric and, and uh, Koss, his wife. And how did that turn out for them? Um, Eric, I haven't talked to Eric in person about this, but but uh, by all accounts, he was really, really, really sick. You know, uh, and he's like, I mean, he's he's one of us in the sense that he's healthy and active, and you know, under well, he's probably late forties, early fifties. You know, uh, but he was like, he lost like twelve pounds. He didn't he didn't get out of bed for like twelve days or something like that. Oh, was he um, hospitalized? No, uh, they. I guess he didn't reach the point where they. I, I, I shouldn't say. I'm not exactly sure why he didn't go to the hospital, but they got tested later on, and you know, relatively recently, they both had the antibody. Damn, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I know another person who is a previous guest of the Hammer Factor who got it, but I'm, I feel a little weird about sort of like disclosing people's medical stories without. Yeah, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I but, know a couple yeah. people who have had it. Various, various symptoms from super mild to, you know, bad fever for a while. Luckily, everybody pulled out of it, but crazy times. It's well, crazy. Well, we got a jam-packed show. We got uh, Alec Voorhees, who is the new race director for the North Fork Championship, who's going to be on with us later. Um, as well, we have Kevin Colburn. Um, who is works with American Whitewater, and he is going to join us in the Great American Outdoors Act. We're going to discuss the Pisgah Nantahala National Forest <clears throat> Division plan, Nolichucky Wildland Scenic, various other things. But my God, man, you got to admit, anybody ever had an experience in your life like 2020? I mean, I don't think anybody has, right? I mean, it's been or at least anyone in the United States. I don't know. It's gnarly. I mean, well, did you think in February that you were going to be sewing gowns in like four or five weeks? Well, obviously not. No. I mean, we didn't think about making PP until literally the day, you know, the, the, the doctor and the other guy came walking to our factory asking for or after our shop asking for him. How did, how did all that come to be? You told me a little bit, but kind of paint this picture for us. So this is like mid-March. We're at our white salmon store, and it's just starting to – we're just – the fact that this is really going to be a real, real problem is just starting to sink in. And, uh, you, you know, listen, we make kayaking gear. We're not – you know, it's always – every year is a crapshoot. I mean, there's a million ways these businesses can get – can get – reduced to rubble as we've seen you know through many examples in palace Force history anyway we're sitting there we're, i mean literally the day we're sitting there with the staff wondering what are we going to do to get through this um uh a doctor a doctor dr berge is as a woman doctor in um hood river um she works at providence in oregon and a guy named uh, maui meyer 
Yeah, that's his name, Maui. It's Hood River. Uh, and he owns a, a real estate company here, among other things, in town. And they just came into the factory and they had a, an isolation gown, you know, one of these surgical gowns. And uh, Dr. Berge was, she pointed out that masks are getting made and they're relatively easy to make, but but no one's making these surgical gowns. You know, these gowns are things that keep like bodily fluid and whatever off of people's bodies. It's an important part of PPE when you're in the hospital. She says, can you make these? And I'm like, yeah, actually we can make these. And uh, I mean, it's super simple sewing, but it also turns out a lot of the things that are the PPE, they need to be relatively airproof and water and waterproof and and uh, the construction and the seams and how these things get together kind of are similar, but much, much, much simpler than like a dry suit. Um, and so the way it worked is because we can't, um, we couldn't, we're not, a, we're not an approved medical facility, you know, to make approved, you know, approved medical protection. Um, they did this by raising money uh, through donations. And they actually raised a tremendous amount of money, um, in the whole Pacific Northwest. And the idea is we're going to make uh, these gowns for, um, local hospitals, meaning basically, you know, between Portland and, and up the Columbia Gorge, um, and we'd give them to the hospitals. Um, and so we got a budget and we bought about, we bought about 10, about eight sewing machines and hired, a, uh, maybe, uh, eight or nine out of work kayakers. And, uh, we got a factory space donated to us. And literally in three or four days we were sewing gowns. Um, and we couldn't get the crazy thing is at the time we couldn't get, uh, you know, gowns are made with, um, um, they're made with a, an impregnated spun bound material. Right. And what that means is, is this material that's been, has some kind of, it's, it's, it's cheap material. That's, that's waterproof and airproof doesn't hold bacteria. Right. Typically this would be like Tyvek. Tyvek is, is like a, a material that's impregnated with, um, poly, uh, polyethylene HDPE. Um, it's cheap. It's easy to sew. It's waterproof, relatively waterproof. Um, but we couldn't get this. There's nothing available out in the medical world to get this. Like everything else for PEP in March, you could not get anything like this. So I went down to the hardware store because I knew home wrap, the stuff they wrap houses with, Tyvek, is basically, it's the same thing. It's impregnated. It's fibrous material impregnated with polypropylene or polyethylene. And so we started buying house wrap, Tyvek house wrap. And that was our original thing is before anyone could make surgical grounds, we were making tons of surgical grounds made out of house wrap. And so um, we bought, I don't know, a couple pal. I mean, we bought... 400 rolls or something of, of 12 foot Tyvek and, and cut it with bandsaws into cuttable, you know, um, rolls of fabric you cut on a cutting table and we started production. Um, and it gave us a real interesting, I mean, it gave us a real, uh, um, jumpstart on this because before anyone else could get gallon fabric, we we're making this out of house wrap and it's actually caught on and other people heard about what we were doing and started using house wrap as well. And at some point I think DuPont stepped in and wasn't too super psyched about the situation. Um, DuPont, who has such a sterling reputation in so many ways. <laughs> uh, and there was some legal talk about what, what was going on here. Um, I think they realized it was, they, they couldn't really stop people from doing it. I don't know, but I mean, I mean, that would really not be a great piece of PR for them. Does DuPont make Tyvek? They make Tyvek. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I could see, I mean, I could see not them not wanting house wrap showing up at a hospital room and someone getting sick because it's not an approved garment you know i understand that but hey is what it is so we ended up making we ended up making twelve thousand or over ten thousand gowns in whoa know, and how long months. uh under three months two and a half months something like that but it was fun because we it was a bunch of kayakers 
all of whom have never sewn before, sat down in these industrial sergers and ultrasonic machines, and we just we just got them trained up and started hammering these things out. That's really cool. So are you done with so, it? That's what we did. That's what I did full-time. I sat down. I haven't done this in 20 years, but we ran a sewing factory, and we sat down, and I sewed at a sewing machine every day for eight hours a day for, for almost three months, along with alongside everybody else. It was great. So... So are you done with that? Are you going to make more? Or? Well, we got a contract from the state of Oregon to make 10,000 gallons. And at this point, we'd already had uh, a bunch of, um, we had a couple more factories on board who were part of the team. You know, we'd, we'd put together a tech pack, meaning we gave them really specific instructions how to make these things and the patterns. And we'd already figured out a good system for putting these things together. But we got, a, we got an order from the state of, state of Oregon for 10,000 gallons, which we filled jointly. Um, and when that was that was over last week, last Tuesday, we sewed the last gown. And the the crazy thing was is is that um, we, you know, in a relatively, I mean, literally in four days, we had a sewing factory up and running. But there was still a lot of kinks to work out. By the end of the three months, we were really good at what we were doing, and we had it dialed, you know. And we were getting really cost effective in putting these things together and cutting this fabric. And we were basically telling anybody, anyone who wanted gowns, that we could make them. We couldn't make them in onesies and twosies, like for a dentist office or whatever. But we could make, we could take an order for ten thousand gowns, no problem, right? And we had it. We had a little network of factories that we could expand if need be. But but almost right away, we were getting, we were talking with buyers for hospitals. This was kind of the crazy part. And this is mid-pandemic, you know. And this would be like a buyer for a hospital group. And these guys would represent, you know, maybe the entire state of New Mexico or 10,000 or a thousand hospitals or whatever. And we'd be like, they'd say, well, we're looking for this. And they'd send us a screenshot from an Alibaba, you know, page with like a hospital gown for like a dollar 50 or $2. And they said, this will one like, well, we can't do that. And I said, and it'd be like, you know, like, I don't think you're going to get that. That's, that's a, like, that's, you know what I mean? I get that. And, but furthermore, the reason we're in this predicament is because you keep going back to these guys to get these gowns, right? And it's been made clear to me by anyone who's on the front lines, these gowns are, that they're getting for $2 are garbage. I mean, they're barely worth I've seen these things. They are garbage. I would not protect – I would not consider these uh, a protective garment in any way, shape, or form. I mean, they're, they're trash. Um, the things we were making were so much more effective at keeping bodily fluids off of your person. Um, but it was just a good glimpse at the, the broken – I guess entire medical industry, right? I don't know. But at the beginning, we were like, this would be a good another job or side gig or another second company. But by the end of the three months, we realized that there's this is a, a crazy, crazy, crazier than paddle sports, even. Man, crazy indeed. I have a friend who, a neighbor who <laughs> is in the ventilator business. He works for Phillips. And early on, we were talking about. Oh God, you know, you talking about just people being in this predicament and the predicament where we can't get these gowns and they're coming in. And so basically in China, they had thousands of ventilators that they had already had made at their factory there, but China would not ship them out. And essentially there were two reasons. One was they wanted to keep them there in case they sure. needed them, you know, in case they needed them. And number yeah. two you know, they're not exactly doing any favors on trade with the U.S. right now. Of course. Um, of course. So it, it opens up, you know, we spent a half hour talking about it. And, you know, they're they're basically diverse, you know, divesting where they manufacture and all kinds of things. This is a big company, Philips. And but I just I find it interesting I mean, you were in that foray for a while. 
the, the thing is, I mean, the, what the common sense approach would be is that, you know, the state of Oregon, like a lot of things are getting pushed to the states, at least currently, to deal with, right? The state of Oregon would say, we're going to make 20% or 10% of our PPEs always be made in the United States, right? And, you know, the other 80% can be made offshore, right? And so we have a bunch of factories we work with in Vietnam or wherever, and say we started a company. You know, we took what, the people we had, they were continuing to make PPE, and it represented like 5 or 10% of our output, but the other 80% came offshore. I understand the cost effectiveness there. If and when we ever get back in the situation, we would have the machines and the people and everything ready. And if we need to ramp up, it would be infinitely easier than what we had to deal with three months when we started this. And so much cheaper and so much faster, and we'd be ready to go. But you, the, you just realize that this is going to get legislated between 10 years and infinity. It's just never going to happen, right? <laughs> and so the common sense approach, which is that, right, is... is it's just never going to happen. And, you know, we had an opportunity to talk to our, you know, our state senator about this and, and you know, the governor. And, and you start discussing this thing and they look at you like it's never going to happen. That's a great idea that's never going to happen. Or, you know, it's such a huge push to make this work. I mean, Louis, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, imagine a, a state telling a, a hospital that they're going to have to buy a private hospital, they have to buy this percent of their PP from a domestic source. I mean, great idea, but God, it seems so easy. I, I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that there's not more. I mean, that just seems like such a glaringly. I mean, I, yes, getting anything done through any sort of political process is is extremely difficult. But like, you right. think that this would be a clarifying moment for a lot of people, and it seems to like me, such an obvious. To, right to me, we wouldn't outsource our our, our munitions to China. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's we wouldn't like have bullets made of examples, China, right? Yeah, army. Like, it wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. It should be yeah. the same I mean, exact it's thing. It's like the same thing, like all the lobbying for uh, like critical minerals, right? It's like there are these like you know small list of like rare earth metals that are really important. Um, you're really important for like all sorts of like electronics manufacturing and like weapons manufacturing and whatever. And there's this big push, even though. You know, we're not capable of economically producing these things relative to China to like open up mining for these things because it's, you know, a geopolitical liability to have all these things coming from some other part of the world. Right. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's hard to separate what part of that push is just driven by mining industry and what part of it is actually real. But I mean, it's like, makes sense, you know, like I'm not in favor of mining, but like, eh, you know, like maybe you guys have a point here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's the long and short of it. I might go on and on. I don't want to bore you guys with the details. It's like, of it, I don't know. I'm just like so impressed. I mean, you guys did, man. It's so cool. Just like. It was a weird, it was a very, it was a great coincidence. You know, we had experience actually sewing things, which is a kind of a dying thing in the U.S. Um, and it got put to work again. So. And so you think you're done with it for good? Um. Well, I, you tell me. I, COVID's are we, COVID's cured, right? I don't think this is gonna be a problem anymore. <laughs> so I don't think I'm we need to worry about it. Man, tonight to head to Tulsa, right? <laughs> What's <laughs> COVID's over? <laughs> <laughs> when all this broke out, how were you guys? You know, what were your thoughts? What were you doing? You know, like how, how did it unfold? Just like on a personal, like outside of IR, how did? How did it go down for you guys individually? I think Lewis and I are in the same boat that nothing really 
and probably I don't know, maybe a lot of people don't like this. Nothing really changed that much. I mean, Hood River wasn't a hot spot. Or yeah, but like a... you're homeschooling your kids and stuff. How does it not change? We're not homeschooling anybody. <laughs> <laughs> if, you mean, if you mean them going out and skating in the front yard for eight hours a day, that's <laughs> homeschool. It was pretty easy. <laughs> Chelsea asked us about homeschooling the other day, and I was like, "What? Oh, God, <laughs> you're dude. kidding? Yeah, you need you need a couple of four year olds, dude. Yeah." No, Mark kids are old enough. They go out and skate on their own. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, it was epic uh, here. It was an epic change of everything, you know. I mean, we most went... my kids can kickflip now. So, <laughs> you know, my kids can't. My kids can't shred on a bike now. They've gotten way better at their bike skills. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, definitely, my whole schedule, everything that we were doing, changed, and just. God, dude, I just remember having to lay off our nanny, who we've had for four years full time, and just, you know, it was not, dude, it was, it was big life altering, offering thing here in the Grace House, Grace Household for sure. And then, so there's a movement here. How do you fit into the movement, like as as Outdoor Alliance or or or, or Immersion Research? Where do you guys, I mean, how are you navigating that? Yeah, it's like, I mean, it's definitely a time for reflection on a lot of this stuff. And I mean, I think that, you know, thinking about how we pursue diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, as Outdoor Alliance, as like, you know, an outdoor recreation community. I mean, I think it's something that's been, you know, quite on our minds for a while before this. And we've been sort of, you know, I don't know, like doing some training and doing some thinking and, you know, trying to get more involved with partner organizations that are like really immersed in this space but you know obviously for us it's uh you know it adds a lot of urgency to to this kind of efforts i think just trying to like you know think about you know what we're doing here and like you know how we make sure that the the you know efforts we're undertaking are you know occurring to everybody's benefit and not just like you know the you know traditionally white participants and the sports that we represent it's like oh you know, there's you know a lot of historical and present day reasons why people of color don't always feel welcome in the outdoors or safe in the outdoors and, and you know even before um you know before George Floyd was murdered there was you know the the um Ahmaud Arbery he was just killed out you know, out for a run in Georgia. And like, there's the story about the guy, uh, Christian Cooper was his name, who is mm-hmm. like out, you know, birding in Central Park and is like accosted by some, you know, white woman there. And it's like, you know, it's definitely, you know, there's stuff for us to do here, right? I mean, it's like, it's not just some other issue. It's not just about police violence. It's about like systemic racism. And, you know, I think we have to take a hard look at, you know, how that, how that has an effect in our space, you know, it's like, there's, there's stuff for us to do, to do here for sure, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to, you know, be productive participants in this process. And like, I think it's, you know, it's meant to be hard, right? I mean, like, I think it's not just something that you can like, you know, check a box. It's like, we gotta like, we gotta wrangle with these, with these issues and really do some, some soul searching about like, you know, what we can do to be like part of making things better. Yeah. 
it's challenging. You know, for me, it's, I mean, you know, full disclosure, you know, where I live, it's like a, I'm like a loaf of Wonder Bread in a field of snowflakes. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> everywhere around me is, is white. And so, I mean, I'm just doing a lot of listening. I'm doing a lot of listening, trying to figure out, you know, just put myself out of my comfort zone as much as I can. I mean, are people calling Outdoor Alliance or calling Immersion Research saying, what are you going to do about this? What's your statement? How is it in that regard? I don't know. I feel like we were kind of kind of early coming out with like a statement. But I mean, a statement's, you know, I mean, that's kind of the easy part. Yeah, we got, we definitely got people asking what, what, what our thoughts are, were on the subject. I mean, how did they phrase that? How does that, that come in? Well, yeah. So, uh, well, they're like, what's your, what's your policy? I mean, what are you going to do? What's your policy? And I think we, someone, one of our staff, I think posted like the black thing on Instagram, the black square. And I think someone said, this is pretty weak. Like what, what you guys give us some more thought. And so like as a business owner, right. You'd like to have your, you'd like to have your plan and your course, your course you're going to take. And when things don't, you get a deviation or a kink in that you tantrum, at least I tantrum. Right. So people, this becomes a thing and I start tantruming. Like, I just don't want to, I just don't want to, I, I, it's not what I had scheduled for this week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you really, I mean, obviously we, you have to calm down and start paying attention to what the hell is going on. Um, and people are writing us and asking us what we're thinking about this. And so, at least I are, you know, we talked about it amongst our staff a bunch. And actually, I reached out to Philip Curry from Astral, who's a, who's pretty up on, on this kind of thing. And and Geltman, I called Geltman. We talked about it a few times. Um, and just sort of, you know, wondering what this means for us. And, you know, you're tempted to be like, I know some people wrote on Instagram. You're like, well, you know, if black people want to kayak or whatever, they just go kayak, you know. I mean, we're not doing anything to stop them from kayaking. And it's a social or cultural thing. And, and if you even just scratch the surface of this, you realize that's that's entirely missing the point. And the point is, and I don't know if Lewis, you pointed this out or someone I was talking about, they were like, can you imagine being a black paddler going to West Virginia to go kayaking? You know? And no, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm scared was, to go was, to West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are places like that we go, right? That are like, yeah. they're like, fucked, you know? It's like, how do you feel yeah. driving through? Like, have you ever driven through like Sandpoint, Idaho, or someplace like that? It's like, yeah, yeah I'm walking, you're getting dinner. You're going to get dinner, and you're like, oh, you know, oh shit. <laughs> this is definitely <laughs> not where I, I need to be right now, you know? And you realize this is, you know, while pile sports, you know, we have limited tools at our disposal. It is still an issue that we have to, we have to think about in our sport. I mean, when you really step back, you're like, yeah, until we can fix this, our sport is, has, is broken in some way. You know what I mean? Until we, and you wonder why we don't have, you know, people of color in the industry. And that's probably one of the bigger reasons when it comes down to it, you know? And it's hard, I guess something I've been thinking about too, or was thinking about this morning, you know, it's just like, it's like, what do we do? Like, it's a hammer factor, you know, it's like, I mean, we have stuff to do, but it's just so hard to know, you know, I mean, I feel like we've had a lot of, uh, you know, a bit of soul searching about, you know, our, particularly our early days of like, really not doing very well with having women on the podcast, right? And it was like, you know, part of what we recognize is that like, we can't 
you know, it's not fair to, you know, have women come on the show and be like, you're here to talk about women's issues. Tell us about that, you know? And it's like, I think what we kind of realize is like, we just have to like really make a concerted effort to make sure we're having, you know, a lot of women guests on to talk about like whatever. And it's like, I feel like, you know, for us to do that same approach with, you know, trying to have a more, you know, like racially diverse set of guests or voices on a podcast, it's like, it's hard when there's, you know, not a lot of, you know, diversity in the sport, but I think that's something that we should, you know, think about. It's just like, how do we, so I mean, we do have people on from like the outdoor industry more broadly, or like we've had like Doc Rocco on or like, you know, like I think just thinking about, you know, even if it's not to talk about like, like equity issues, like just trying to do a better job having like a more diverse set of guests. I don't know. I, I, I like. I you know. It's probably not a conversation we need to have like on the air. But I mean, I think we should. You know, we should give it some thought. Like how we can make the podcast part of the part of the solution here. You know, I mean, it's like we're obviously just a tiny drop in the bucket. But dude, I'm all about it. Like, there's problem, something. For us, you know? Yeah, I'm all about it. Problem is, is I know two black kayakers. You know what I mean? I mean, we'll. You know, I'm happy to to bring anybody of color on the show it's just i don't know how to do it you know totally i know and it's like it's just hard because it's like i don't think it's fair to like expect those guys to come on and be like all right you're here is like the voice of like the black guy exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> go you know start talking <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i don't know I, I, a lot of listening that's where i'm at just a lot of listening and i don't know <clears throat> that's definitely something we'll have to revisit. We'll see if some, some people in our audience have some opinions or some ways to help us do that. Pretty much. I feel like we had some, like, there were some, like, wasn't there like an out, there's like an outside article. I mean, there's certainly like plenty of folks who are, you know, writing about this issue, like more broadly in outdoor, you know, just like the outdoor industry or outdoor sports. And, you know, maybe we could, you know, try and see if somebody who's like already, you know, immersed in that kind of writing or that kind of, thinking wants to come on and uh have that conversation with us at some point that's a great idea yeah i mean i i pointed this out i wrote we wrote a statement for facebook and our website whatever but this is i said that there but this is an <laughs> issue did? For kayak. yeah and but this is an issue just for kayak i mean the entire outdoor industry is overwhelmingly white right um i mean you it's it's an issue that needs to be addressed in, in a much broader scope than just kayaking. No, I agree. I agree 100%. I don't know. I, I think it's uh, something we got to revisit. Like, I think the important part of it is to continue to bring it up and bring, you know, not let it just kind of get pushed to the side as something, um, you know, something, well, I'm not, you know, I don't share those beliefs, so it's nothing I need to worry about. Yeah, yeah uh, totally. And I, it's been interesting, like, I feel like one thing interesting to me is just watching, you know, just like the, like, like the rise of the term, like, anti-racist in a way where it's like, you know, to me, it's like, you know, I think the intent behind that is that it's not enough just to be, like, not racist. It's like you have to, like, actively be engaged in, you know, dismantling these structures of white supremacy. And, like, you know, it makes a lot of sense, you know? I just started reading this book. Uh, it's called Black Faces, White Spaces by uh, Carolyn Finney about sort of uh, you know, like the relationship between 
like the black community and the outdoors, but I haven't gotten very far yet. But it's on my reading list. You have to give us a report on that in six months when yeah. we record again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. We have a lot in the outdoor space to talk about. Um, Lewis, can you fill the airwaves here for a second while I work on getting Kevin Colburn patched in here about some of the things going on, exciting things on the outdoor policy front? Yeah, man. So I feel like we missed just like the like craziest turn of events in our six-month hiatus here with this Great American Outdoors Act. So, I mean, for... I mean, for just like an unholy number of years, the outdoor recreation community, the conservation community, hunters and anglers, basically everybody who cares about getting outdoors has been working on, you know, first reauthorizing the Land and Water Conservation Fund and then later finding permanent funding for LWCF. Um, and like what LWCF does is it takes a portion of the revenue from offshore oil and gas leasing and makes that money available for um, recreation and conservation projects like you know ecosystem remediation you know everything and then everything from like baseball diamonds to like backyard trail systems to like river access points like lwcf paid for um the launch site at bz corner here on white salmon like the takeout for the trust to put in for the middle so this means we're for offshore drilling in florida we're not this is not about being for it this is about saying if we're going to do this which we're already doing you know the government is taking in revenue from that stuff right and it's like we're saying like look if you're gonna if you're doing this we're taking that revenue and you know paying back the environment for some of the harm we're causing by doing this so this why not, not i mean just play a devil's advocate here why not just take the oil off the coast of florida rather than getting it from saudi arabia or alaska or saudi arabia someplace where at least we'll get some some kickback from it we're not saying don't like like i mean it's the what's really happening i mean it's i mean how, what we could do going forward i mean yes like god willing we're gonna ramp this stuff down at some point and move on to to you know clean energy solutions and at that point we'll have to find some other source of funding for recreation and conservation projects and that's fine like that's a good right. problem to have and this is kind of how it's baiting this because if everything goes right this is gonna be a dwindling source of revenue over the next 10 years right i mean you yes so what's gonna replace this like what's what i mean i i don't know what the the I don't know what the accounting is, but like however many billions of dollars come in through uh, revenue, it's $900 million a year that are you know specifically now going to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So it's not we, a got, we have a long way a to fixed go. Amount. It's a fixed amount. Okay. Before we get any deeper into this, I would like to welcome Kevin Colburn, Stewardship Director for American Whitewater to the Hammer Factor. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hey, guys. Not much. Sorry, we got on some it. tangents there early in the show, but we're we're kind of back on script now. So it's a lot to talk about these days. Yeah, we're gonna start <laughs> with Apex Watercraft and move on from there. So let me let me before we get into Kevin, <laughs> let me let me let me just finish catching us up on GAOA, and then we can uh, Kevin can uh. What's GAOA? So anyway, what's GAOA? So GAOA is Great American Outdoors Act, which is permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Like right now. $900 million a year allegedly goes into this account in the general treasury that is available for Congress to spend for the purposes of the program, but Congress has to spend it. And typically every year they spend about half of that $900 million, about $450 million. Trump's budget. What did they do with the year, other half? 
it's just like gone in the ether of like the accounting of the federal government. I mean, it's just redirected towards other stuff and like it's there on paper, but in reality it's, you know, being spent on whatever. So, um, you know, Trump releases his budget in February, reduces LWCF spending, you know, not the authorized 900 million, not the sort of historic 450 million, but like, $20 $20 million, like basically zeroes out LWCF spending. Two weeks later, there's like Donald Trump tweets about this and he's like, I want Congress to pass a bill that fully funds LWCF and funds the maintenance backlog on public lands. Thanks, Senator Gardner and Senator Daines. So, what? Cory Gardner in Colorado, Republican senator like on the ropes, you know, probably going to lose in the fall. Steve Daines, Republican Senator in Montana, uh, tough reelection fight against former governor, Steve Bullock, like two of the most vulnerable Republican senators in the country in tough reelection fights in like very heavily pro public land states. And so Trump's like, all right, like, like these guys have convinced him that in order to help their reelection chances, he's got to like, do this thing and pass this big conservation bill you know so this whole thing is about i mean kind of about getting gardner and Danes reelected. but like before we get too cynical about this it's like we That's have all the stuff works it's, it's how a lot of it works but also like we made that happen right it's like we as an outdoor recreation community as a conservation community you know, hunters and anglers, everybody else we made those guys feel like they have to deliver something here to offset their otherwise abysmal conservation records or they're going to get run out of office. And so like they're going to Donald Trump and they're Mitch McConnell and they're like, you got to pass this thing or like, I'm going to lose. Like I can't just keep like voting to destroy NEPA and, you know, fighting off wilderness bills. Like I got to like throw these guys something. And like, this is the thing. So like, I mean, is as easy to just be cynical about it. It's also a demonstration of the political power when we like make this into a thing, you know? So anyway, so with this whole, whole thing was about to like go to the Senate floor. It was about to pass in early March and then everything just went like totally sideways with the coronavirus. And now, you know, finally they've returned to it in the Senate uh, this week and it just passed Tuesday. So that, I mean, just like, like such a miraculous big thing that this happened and, you know, we got to get it through the house still. We definitely have work to do to make that happen. But just like, why, why is that? I mean, the house was going to be a slam dunk. I guess not. So what's the obstacle there? I mean, one is that, you know, the Democrats know that you know, McConnell now wants this, that this is something that's going to help the reelection chances of those Republicans. And like, you know, they have a point of leverage here and we have to like make them understand that like, like, let's just take yes for an answer and pass this thing. Like, do not play politics with this thing. Like, let's get it done. I mean, I think the other thing is that, you know, the Republicans in the Senate, you know, they're not worried about the coronavirus and about black lives matter like they're just like whatever and in the house i think they're significantly more attuned to the perception that like what they should be doing right now is working on you know these like 
bolster it and police violence and um you know respond to the coronavirus and so like i think there's a little bit more trepidation about doing something that at least ostensibly feels a little disconnected from that and i think you know the message for us needs to be like you know timing's timing like if you need to wait a little later to do this you know you can wait a little but like you got to get this done like we got to take yes for an answer don't use this as like something to try to extract leverage for something else like like pass this thing lewis i'd say too you mentioned lwcf being part of the great american outdoors act but it also has nine and a half billion dollars for the maintenance backlog on public lands so roads and trails primarily and that's a really big deal it's spread out over five years and it started out as just focused on the parks because like there's this kind of there's just a better lobby for the parks and a bunch of us in, including oa like pushed for uh inclusion of the forest service and the other agencies and now the forest service has 15 percent of it and what that'll do is it'll free up more money for trails um to be well it'll lead to trail maintenance but then it'll free up opportunities to basically improve the trail system for like mountain biking and hiking and getting the rivers. Um, and yeah, I think it'll just be a really good thing for water quality. Just good. Yeah. And just like, I mean, such a big, I mean, that was the other part of the story is like, you know, all of the wrangling that, you know, we did with a bunch of partners to get the forest service included in this thing. Like, as Kevin was saying, like that was not a given and just, I mean, to like shake, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to lose from the money tree for the forest service like that, like that just doesn't happen. And so, you know, the fact that we're so close to getting this thing done is it's, it's sick. It's a big deal. Aren't there some protections, some wild and scenic river protections in this great American outdoors act as well? Or am I confused on that front? I don't think so. Nothing. No. So, is this not a standalone bill or is this attached to something else? Like why can't Congress just take this one issue up, not attach it to anything and just hit the ringer on it and be done with it? I mean, that's, that's what's happening. It's like it, the GAOA bill is LWCF and deferred maintenance like together. And, uh, it's moving as, as its own thing right now, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> Yeah, the House could pass the, the identical version, send it to the president. It could be done. Yeah, I know that the the path to actually get it into law or to get it passed when I was lobbying for LWCF, it was, God, there was talk about it getting attached to some roads bill and to a million different things and how it was going to be done and just, I mean, to see it as a standalone thing. I mean, I, I don't think anybody was thinking that was going to happen. I mean, maybe they were. I mean, what was that, like a year and a half Billy, ago? Billy Hearn saw that coming, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Hearn is the most uh, dominant. Uh, so that's exciting. So write to your congressman. Tell him to get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Don't dink around on it. Get it done. Quit stalling. Get it done. Don't attach it to anything else. Get it done. No excuses. Get it done. That's right. Am I right? Okay. Perfect. Right. Where do Sweet. we stand in Oregon with this? Uh, Merkley and Wyden were both huge supporters. Um, I would say, I mean, the House, I mean, there's what, five Democrats and one Republican in the House in Oregon. And I, 
your your buddy uh greg walden there in hood river who lives like a block up the street from dirty fingers and is yeah. does not have the most sterling record on conservation issues you might want to uh have a chat with him if you see him around town yeah mm-hmm. all right i'll talk to greg <laughs> <laughs> so kevin I, I, next, I actually sat next to him on a flight one time he was uh like I mean, it's Hood River. You see the guy all. He's he's around everywhere. Yeah, right? you recognize him. Like, yeah, it's not like yeah. it's like Mayberry. You know, I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Kevin, throwing this over to you, there is a big forest revision plan going on for Nantahala and Pisgah. Can and I believe we're about to end the comment deadline. Is coming up soon, within a couple, maybe a week or something. I'm not exactly sure. The 29th. Yeah, June 29th is the comment deadline. Okay, so can you kind of unpack what's in this and what's relevant to the paddling community? Sure, yeah. Well, the Nantahala Pisca, so it's National Forest Service land. It basically covers a big chunk, 1.1 million acres of the western part of North Carolina. You can think of the western end being like Chioa, Hawassi, like almost to the Ocoee, basically and then east out to Wilson Creek. So it includes a whole bunch of great whitewater, Nolichucky, uh, North Fork French Broad, uh, the Pigeons, um, Linville, you know, Watauga. It's just, it's like whitewater mecca for the, the southeast, basically. So it's great, um, great landscape, super important to paddlers. And the forest plan is basically the, the governing guidance document for the Forest Service here for the next 15 to 20 years. So it's kind of a big deal. And then they'll do another plan. But it's kind of your, you know, once every 15 to 20 years, you get a chance to, to nudge the Forest Service in a new direction. So that's what's, that's what's been going on. We've been part of a collaborative group working on this for the last six or seven years. And we are right, we're just about to send in a really big collaborative letter with like lots of different interests in it, with lots of support for recreation. Uh, we'll send that in here next week. And uh, it's been a been a really cool process so far. What do you like and not like about this revision plan? Um, I, what I like about it, it's for one thing, it, it has all the alternatives that they present are not polarizing. There, we we really encourage them to do win-win alternatives. So, like, you look at the alternatives, and it's like everybody gets something in all the alternatives. So it's sort of like it asks the question of how do you want to get a good outcome, not how do you maximize your own your own interest so that was cool you know it kind of just took some of the fire out of the conversation and people had to think substantively um they definitely included a lot of discussion of recreation for the first time like they acknowledge mountain biking exists they acknowledge rock climbing and paddling exists you know just we're just there which is cool um and i'd say what i Oh, there's also there's a lot of emphasis on ecosystem restoration and like I just think the forest will be you know a little better off after all this. Um, there's definitely a little I've been calling it like unnecessary roughness when it comes to recreation. You know, we if the Nantahala Pisgah were a national park, it would be the third most visited national park. Oh, Something wow. like five to six million visitors a year, uh, growing at an astronomical rate. And uh, it's just a really popular place to go. And there's people day hiking and doing all, you know, swimming and fishing and just doing everything. Um, so we really wanted the Forest Service to to take a real, like, positive view of recreation and say, all right, lots of people are coming because it's cool. How can we, like, make this sustainable? And, um, 
you know, kind of provide the service to the public. And they, they largely do that, do that, but there's some, there's some kind of weird stuff. Like they put some downward pressure on climbing. And I mean, every user group kind of has these little downward pressure points in the plan of like, you know, there'll be no new horse trails in wilderness. So we're not going to have a climbing policy. We're going to, you know, put some limits on, uh, uh, you know, mountain biking on uh, off-system trails that are new. Uh, the Chituga boating closures are still in there, and those should probably be eased at this point. So, you know, those are kind of, as a recreation community, we have conflicts more with the Forest Service, whereas all the other interest groups like wildlife and timber and uh, uh, conservation groups, they're, they have conflicts with each other, and the Forest Service is kind of trying to solve those conflicts, whereas our conflicts are with, like, the managers that just don't really want to welcome us to do our thing in the woods. Just break down the climbing thing real quick. Like what, what is, sure. the, what is there, what, what is the forest service issue with, with putting this little, uh, you know, little, I guess, stamp on, eh, we got to watch this. Like what's the issue? We, we don't really know. We've talked to them about it a lot. Um, they, they wanted to do a future climbing management plan and we're like, no, like we've been talking about this for six years, like just put it in the plan, you know, just have a fixed anchor policy that allows fixed anchors. Um, I think part of the problem with climbing with them is that climbing does often traverse, you know, rare sensitive habitats. They're using non-system trails, you know, to get to the base of the cliff usually. And um, then you have people bolting that are not, you know, government sanctioned people that are putting um, fixed anchors out there. So it, it all kind of pushes some, management buttons with the Forest Service, but there's good ways to address this that are used all across the Forest Service nationwide. And for whatever reason, our forest here just doesn't really want to deal with it. So I've had a lot of conversations with Access Fund and uh, Climbers Coalition locally here to, to just try to get the Forest Service to do the right thing. Huh. And is there a place on the American website where, or American Whitewater where we can we can go voice our opinion on this? Yes, there there will be by the time anyone hears this. Okay. After your extensive <laughs> editing process, you know, we'll have, we'll have it up. <laughs> yeah. All I got to do is edit out a little pre-show banter in, okay. regards, <laughs> in regards to Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, outside yeah, of that, it's going to be good to go. Yeah, we'll have an action alert up for sure. Um, one more thing, Kevin, before we jump into Golly Fest, which I'm sure is – you know, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, what is going on with Nola Chucky wild and scenic? I believe there's some relevant new news happening in that front. Yeah. Um, well, much like the great American outdoors act, I think there's an opportunity to get Nola Chucky legislation introduced here in North Carolina and in Tennessee as well. So, I mean, I don't have any big new updates other than we're working on it. You know, we have draft legislation. We have a new map that Jack Henderson made for us. Um, we have meetings with county commissioners kind of in the future. Like most things, the whole COVID situation really threw a monkey wrench in our ability to sit down with people and meet and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations that are important. But I think this summer we're just going to do another big push. You know, we need people to be reaching back out to uh, their congressmen and senators in North Carolina and Tennessee. Uh, even if they've done so before, it's a great time to be like, hey, what's the story with the Nolichucky? You know, we really would love to see a wild and scenic bill. Um, 
that would be really helpful. You can go to nolliwildandscenic.org and do that. Just an AW site we created for um, for the campaign. What about uh, how long has LWCF been in the works, Lewis? I mean, I mean, getting this through the Senate. How many years has it been? They all just blur together to me at this point. I mean, like as long as I've been out of school and working, we've been working on LWCF. Kevin, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think yeah, a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's important when people, you know, it's it's easy to get fatigue with voicing the way you feel about Noli Wild and Scenic or whatnot, but it's just so important to just keep that keep that pressure up because all you know they're compiling that data. You know, all the aides and all the people helping the congressmen and senators, they're compiling that. Sending totally. It There's just, like, such an element of just, like, you just got to, like, do all this work. And then, you know, when the stars align to actually, like, finish something, it's just, like, it's kind of unpredictable. And, like, you just kind of never know when it's going to happen. But it's, like, you just got to do all that work so that then when the weird political stars align and like Trump tweets about it for some bizarre political reason. You're like, all right, we're in. <laughs> you know? and it's like, it's like, yeah, yeah. My, my visual for that is you have to be standing at the door, pushing on it on the off chance. Someone unlocks it, you know, right. and then it'll swing open. But like, if you're not pushing and it's hard to do that for 10 years and you know, here at AW, we always say, we just laugh like, yeah, everything takes a decade if you're lucky. Like, so what are you guys going to do when this passes? Thing. You have some kind of, I mean, is Hooters open yet, or is it <laughs> like strippers with the face masks as good, or for you guys, or? <laughs> oh well. <it's... laughs> no, so I mean, is there, will there be like some kind of celebration? It seems like a landmark event for you guys. Yeah, I mean, there would be. I actually, I heard on a call the other day that that Trump wanted to uh, sign this thing Fourth of July at uh, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> The LWCF bill? Is, yeah. <laughs> God, I love that guy. Right. Would but you, I... would, would you go, would you go to an event and shake and shake Trump's hand if you were invited uh, for the ceremony? Not a fucking chance. Oh, even if he signed <laughs> LWCF. Oh. Uh, okay. Well, there's that. Did you go, Kevin? <sighs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Set aside your differences and yeah. just go, go get the damn thing signed, right? I, I, yeah. Look, I, you got you got to figure out where you have common ground to get things done. Sometimes, right? How I feel. That's a more mature attitude. I, I know how Grace feels. Grace would build a gold bridge. Exactly. Exactly. It would be just golden and beautiful and huge. Tremendous. Tremendous. What do you think, what do you think the furthest Donald Trump has ever been from a car? Like a hundred yards. <sighs> God, I've got so much. I've got so much Donald Trump fatigue. Thirty-six years straight. Thirty-six years straight. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Kevin. Thirty-six years straight. There's been a golly fest. Yeah, that sounds right. And on year thirty-seven, there's no golly fest. What's your problem? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know. What are you gonna do? No, honestly, number we avoid it. That's it. Honestly, I mean, this is it had to have been an incredibly hard decision. Just kind of tell me how you guys contemplated all this, how it all came together and the whole nine yards. 
Yeah. I mean, the first thing we had to do was deal with like our board meeting in May and then uh, Deerfield in June, Deerfield Festival in, in Massachusetts and a bunch of smaller events. So we were just kind of canceling things all along that were, you know, a month out, you know, a month or two out kind of right, right before, right the last time we could basically. Um, and then it, it just got to a point where we just couldn't, we couldn't see a future where we could have three or 4,000 people get together in a field in a rural community and ensure that event and have that event be welcomed by the community and have it be safe. And, you know, for us, it just made more sense to, to just call it. I mean, it's in keeping with pretty much every other event that I've seen, you know, there's some things were initially rescheduled for the fall. A lot of events were, but you know, most events, I think even those are probably going to be canceled and moved to, to next year. So, we you just guys, couldn't see how we could do guys, it. You guys raise a lot of money from this, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, we get several hundred memberships every year. These are people that come back and renew every year. Um, yeah. It's one of our biggest fundraisers of the year. So it, it really I sucks think, for us to not do it. I mean, I think a lot of paddlers just see this as like a kayaking equivalent of like a juggalo gathering, but there's actually more to it. <laughs> There's like some no, dude punching some dude in the face. There's like a fire with a, something burning that shouldn't be burning. <laughs> Graham Siler is on top of a van, naked, partially clothed. Every, everything right. you say is also true, but it's also a fundraiser. And, uh, yeah, and a great way for us to just connect with people, you know, and just hang out. Like we like to be part of the community too, as staff. So we're all bummed personally. Um, certainly there's no upside for our organization, you know, it, it sucks, but what are you going to do? It's a global pandemic, you know, it's, it's just a weird year. I don't know. I wish I had something profound to say other than we just couldn't figure out a way to do it that, that made sense. So we're going to do something online, you know, best we can. We're going to remind people that, geez, this thing's important to us. The memberships that we get are important to us and hopefully people like a zoom golly fest. We could do that. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm yeah. kidding. I'm being a smartass. Don't. Are don't there any? Are there any There's plans? Like a week. Are there any plans in place to 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 bring? I mean, like, got membership drives or any way to replace that revenue? Have you guys discussed totally. anything in that circle? Yeah, we want to do all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, we want to have it. We want to have it be an online event. We want it to be fun. We want to have a membership drive, like. Yeah, it's just it's hard to pivot, you know, to that when you're busy with everything else. But we're definitely going to do it. Yeah, we'll make it fun. We'll do something cool. You know, we'll do some giveaways, and you know, we still have product to uh, to share and stories to tell, and you know, do some fun fun stuff on social media. We'll do what we can. Put, put together a site where a bunch of vendors can have like a special weekend sale, right? Because uh -huh. you know, a lot of vendors take advantage of that. And, uh, you know, you could have like a virtual uh, Jared Styler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's of all the events, clearly Golly Fest is one you just can't replace online, right? Like, we're going to do our best. It's really fun, but like, the thing about Golly Fest is always the thing that you can't foresee. You know, there's just this funny, funny chaos factor to it. That's a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> you could say that, I suppose. Yeah. 
<laughs> is that a kind of liquor? ah man no golly fest yeah but you know one of the things we are doing is we're we're still pushing for releases to occur and we're we're trying to reschedule a bunch of the spring canceled releases for late summer and fall so you know that'll be cool there'll still be golly releases people still be able to boat and travel up there hopefully you know chiller releases i'm working on getting those uh, rescheduled. We have some cool releases on the Black Canyon of the Bear in Idaho that were canceled that we're going to get uh, in August, maybe August and September, which is we can never do in a normal year. So I don't know. We're just doing the best we can to make it, you know, have lots of opportunities to spread out and get outdoors on the water and, you know, not have any weird closures in place that don't need to be there. So, doing so- the best we can. So the dam managers and all of that kind of thing, they're receptive to this, you know, adding releases later and that kind of thing. Dam managers are like bears and all other people. They're all different. You know, like you just, they're, they, they're just different. Like some are really cool and they're like, yeah, of course we're going to reschedule and others like won't even reply to emails. So, um, we'll see. Great. So what are you going to do about green race? Are you still hoping that's going to get a pan out? We're racing. Racing. We're doing the Upper Yacht race. We're racing. Really? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. About about. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Upper Yacht is space. You can really. There's enough room to spread out in the Upper Yacht race that it's it's not. You know, it doesn't. It's not that. There's plenty of parking. There's plenty of place to gather at the start. It's spread out over several hours. The the, the start times. So. You know. There's a Nolly race tonight. Exactly. Yeah. Nolly race tonight. Yeah. I think you know we about three weeks ago. I mean. I mean, we were just glued to what the guidance from the governor is. There was nothing from the top down from the CDC. I could go into that all day long, you know. But uh, we were just trying to navigate everything. And finally, it just became abundantly clear that there was going to be no direction. So Mm -hmm. I, about three weeks ago, started reaching out to business owners in Saluda, some people from the local community, and basically was just like, hey, you know, you care if we have this race is it is do you want to see this happen or not see this happen and uh i mean overwhelmingly everyone was like yeah you should definitely do it you know you definitely should have it yeah we'd you know i don't see why you'd cancel it and once kind of we got that blessing from the general community and whatnot i mean it's a one minute interval race there's things that we're going to do to change up we're going to do some like online a lot of online things to try and limit the number of spectators that go in there and we're going to change up the awards party it's going to be like a drive-in awards party we're not going to have like central fires and booths and stuff like that um we're adjusting it but you know we're going to race it is a race so, no, we're, we're, we're stoked. But the festival front, I mean, you know, I don't know how you manage that. I don't know how you, I don't know how you manage that. But, I mean, if the river's releasing, you know, that's what it's all about anyway. So, technically, yep. there really totally. is a golly fest. So. It's always a golly season. Yeah. We'll be back next year. Yeah. yeah, yeah we'll make it sure. cool next year. Was there anything else you'd like to add, Kevin? Anything else on your mind you'd like to get off? Um, Not much. Just, you know, thanks to everybody for rolling with COVID and this event cancellations. They're a bummer, but, you know, keep supporting EW. 
Yeah, for sure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. No problem. And uh, get a comment in on Anahilla Pisca. You know, there's, uh, I guess I didn't really talk about what people should say, but you can check out the AW site. But, you know, there's a great chance to increase the number of eligible wild and scenic rivers and uh, ensures the rivers won't be dammed. It kind of puts them on the list for future designation. And one that was left off that people love is the North Fork of the French Broad. So I'm really trying to focus people on that. It's just a classic piece of light water, real close to Asheville um, and Brevard, and just gets a lot of use. It's super cool. So the Forest Service didn't didn't pick that one. They, I don't think they really understood the recreational value. So that's something paddlers can do is, is tell the Forest Service about how certain rivers, especially the North Fork, are really cool recreationally. Um, so that'd be great. I'd love it if people would do that. I've been talking about it for years and uh, need your support. You know, Get an AW membership. Appreciate it, Kevin. Yep. See you guys. Thanks, yeah. Kevin. We'll Better see you. Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> All right, guys. Well, <laughs> I have been in these forest revision meetings, and something that I think a lot of people don't know is a lot of times the forest managers just don't know what you're doing in the woods or what your interests are. And if you tell them, they're going to be way more accommodating and way more into it than a lot of times they just want to know. They just legitimately want to know and don't know. So it's just super important to comment. So does anybody know any of the behind the scenes details of the transfer transfer of the North Fork championship to new ownership? It just happened. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I do, but I'm not sure how many of those are meant to be devolved, so maybe we should leave that one for, for Alec. You are so cryptic. <laughs> I just got to make sure that people don't stop telling me things. I'm going to end up like, well, well, just here's the, the industry gossip, and it's straight from his ears to hammer factor microphone, you know? I, I got know, some I good gossip, to too. I, I, had, I had a very good source within the industry write me about a bunch of stuff we are talking about in the last couple episodes during the during our little hiatus here, none of which I'm allowed to really discuss. <laughs> How does this work? Well, come on, give me some broad generalizations. Well, all right, let me pose a question for you. What do you think is going to happen with Dagger? We had a little over-under going. <laughs> yeah, if you'll recall... Yeah. I took a lot of shit last August for saying eight months. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what the uh, Pelican is going to do with, with Whitewater. So, I don't know. What did you hear, Weld? Through the grapevine, unsubstantiated. Uh, let's, let's not go back into this hole until we have something to actually... <laughs> <laughs> I felt like that was just like a month of just like us being just like beaten with like socks full of rocks. Like I will say, Chucky Morris. I still got bruises from that beating. Heart, who were who was probably one of the longest serving Confluence sales reps of, in the history of Confluence, um, who threatened to kick me in the nuts when he saw me at the trade show in Oklahoma about the whole dagger thing. Is now uh, working for Piranha. Hi, <laughs> <I>, Chucky. <laughs> oh god this is going nowhere fast okay without further ado let's see if we can call alec here and get him on and hear about the north fork championship oh man whitewater how's business weld um well okay uh you know we had a real problem with online sales or with uh with retail sales rather 
I mean, retailers just stopped ordering things. So March, April, which is supposed to be really our biggest months, were mere fractions of what they should be from retail sales. We're picking some of it up from, uh, you know, online sales, but, you know, retailers represent a big chunk of our business. Um, there's definitely a resurgence going on right now. You're seeing stores, a huge level of excitement going on and people going and buying stuff and stores are ordering things right now. I, I think the bigger concern is when, a re- when the recession, if, if and when the recession and or depression hit and it goes on for 8, 9, 10, 16, 20 months, How's that? How's this going to look in a year? You know, um, people are really optimistic when they look at this situation at this second. But I don't think they I don't know that people have really appreciated the economic impact this is going to have and people's discretionary income over the next next several years. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It's something we're going to have to talk about on a lot of different shows because it's going to yeah. I agree with you 100 percent. The PPE helped us a lot. You know, first of all, it kept people it kept people employed. We were able to get our payroll grant through, you know, the complicated algorithm they have by doing that. You know, the, the we were able to do that because we kept people employed making PPE. Um, and we were scrambling for sure. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Time will tell on that one. Um... Moving on, I'd like to welcome Alec Voorhees, Idaho native and new organizer of the North Fork Championship to the show. How's it going, Alec? Good. How are you guys? Good, man. Good. Thanks a lot for taking the time to come on over here. And I guess the congratulations is in order for taking over the North Fork Championship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's been, been good. Uh, just, yeah, pretty crazy times, obviously, but um, – yeah, definitely excited for next year to get it going and get back on track. So, so backing up, um, how did it all work um, when you became the organizer of the race, and how did all that unfold? Yeah, so um, like with last year's event, um, being the like the world championship NFC eight, um, James and Regan, the previous organizers um, who have who's created the event and have made it what it is today. Um, the word kind of got out just before the event that um, last year was going to be the end of it and the end of NFC. And so going into the event, like, every, like it was not too many people knew about it, but um, word was definitely spreading. And then, um, yeah, as soon as the event was over, it was like, it was just crazy. Like once the awards happened and everything and, um, then my mom actually, right after the event, um, approached James and was like, Hey, we don't want to see this die. Um, if you're open to talking about it, let's, let's meet up. And he was like, no, no, we're, we've done what we can with it. We're, we're done. Like, um, thanks for offering, but, um, yeah, we're, we're content with what we've done and, and stuff. And so then that was kind of it. And, um, I think that he was maybe, he was kind of maybe talking to Red Bull and seeing what was going to happen there, but nothing really ever happened. And so then in October, um, James messaged us and was like, Hey, would you guys want to meet up and, um, and see if you guys are still interested and just kind of see what everyone's thinking. And so we met up and, um, yeah, October we all met up and it started to go from there. And then the official takeover, like 
it was a lot of back and forth, like kind of lawyers and getting the contract and everything lined up. And so it wasn't until February that it was completely official. And, um, and yeah, we just started getting to work on it. And so for the first year, they were going to do like a complete handoff and, um, and help out and, um, still be there for the event, kind of like just give the blueprint and, um, actually yesterday we just met up with them and transferred all like the tangible items, like the ramp and the gates and trash cans, fire pits, signage, like all that stuff. Um, just cause the event didn't happen this year, obviously. So, um, we took that over for, from them and, um, yeah, that's kind of how it all went down. And so, um, yeah, myself, my mom were definitely working on it the most. And then Hayden was in Chile, so he wasn't my younger brother. Um, he wasn't, didn't really get a chance to work on anything yet, but that's kind of, who's going to be all putting it together from the, for the future. So. Can, can you give us any insight into why James and Regan were sort of, um, done doing the event? Yeah, they just, um, I mean, it started all from, all from scratch, like for the fierce, like four years they were or more, they were just putting all their money into it and um, losing money at the beginning and then evening, like evening the profits. And then um, the last few years they've made a profit on it. And, um, and it wasn't so much that for them um, as just like the passion of putting the event on and bringing the community together and um, just making it like just, just a cornerstone of the whitewater community. And then, um, because it does take up a lot of time and just the, just the two of them, they were, um, just kind of getting taxed with it. And, um, yeah, they just eventually were like getting to the, getting to the point in their lives where they want to be able to travel after this taking up eight years of their lives. It's funny. They would always call it their little eighth grader. Cause that's how old it is. Like <laughs> just being eight years and stuff. So, um, yeah, they were just kind of ready to kind of move on and um kind of be able to travel and do some other things so yeah i mean i just to see i mean like if, for people who haven't been to that event i mean just like the amount of work that james and regan put into you know every aspect of that just like you mean it really shows and you know it's very understandable how you know almost a decade of that you'd be ready to pass the torch yeah totally and so now it's sort of your baby. Um, you got a full year to get ready. I mean, you know, because no event this year. Before we get into what you're going to do next year, how did the whole decision, how did you make the decision not to do the race this year? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, so because we took it over in February, like I was just working on it for a month and, um, like permits and just kind of getting the crew together and all that stuff. And then when everything just kind of started going down, like, um, I like the main thing that kind of just made me take a break and just like, all right, I'm going to just take a break and just see what happens was like when the NBA shut down, um, for like two weeks, I was just like, just kind of just didn't really know. So I just kind of stopped working on it. And then it took quite a while for us to like, finally figure out what we were going to do our main our first plan was to actually um postpone the event to the end of july because the good thing with the north fork is is that it's guaranteed water all summer because of the agricultural needs for it and so that was our original plan but then um after a couple more weeks went on it was just like 
all right the um the impact on sponsors and them like choosing to keep people employed or put out uh, some money to sponsor the event it was just like that was kind of the main the the main kicker that was like all right we let's just cancel it and and then also with the lack of international paddlers being able to attend like um that just that's a big part of the event too and um yeah so those were kind of the the factors that made us cancel and then obviously now in hindsight like there's like just idaho just this last past weekend like we're we're in stage four of like our opening plan um which is ahead of a lot of other states and even then the event would would probably not want to happen so um end of july who knows but at, at this point there's was really nothing you could do what does stage four look like in idaho what, what what's the governor's guidance on there um it's still still social distancing but um like all businesses are open um nightclubs and light hair salons were open in stage two gyms are open now like everything's open there's i mean there's a few stores obviously that from the top down of, are still closed but um i mean for the most part idaho has been just because it's a low population density it's yeah it hasn't hit hasn't hit as as hard as other places obviously and so it's kind of just still just kind of doing the right thing and um yeah, but you can't even tell that it's really going on right now out here. <laughs> God, I, I rolled through. So, I mean, I was just like in full lockdown mode for, you know, some months. And we, you know, I think I got out and went up to Leavenworth finally after like two or three months. And then like the next time that I had gone, you know, further from my house than like the little way in three months was to go over the South Salmon like a month ago, probably. And we like rolled into banks on the way up there. And it's just like full bank Saturday. Like it yeah. was like COVID did not exist. Like people were like, 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 are you are you hugging? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah, that... hands. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, what are you doing, man? I gotta get out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's totally how it is right now in banks. Like, it's just the whole that whole parking lot is just crowded, and everyone's going to the cafe. And yeah, it's just yeah, like life goes on in banks <laughs> so you you, you kind of have the opportunity to look at this event with a fresh lens are you going to kind of stick to the playbook are you going to change some things up in the coming year what's your what's your internal vision um i mean honestly we don't want to change that much like nfc is nfc for what it is and um like the brand and just the atmosphere and like community that james built with the event like you don't really need to do that much. Like just take what they take, what they did and go with it. And, but obviously like there's a lot of, there's quite a few things that we want to add and just like bring to the event. And, um, just like different, like, because we are like purchasing the event over time, like obviously kind of looking at cutting costs and doing what you can to add to that. That's part of it now. Um, but in terms of like the race and the format and where everything's going to be like, still all that um the last few years like the thursday night after the qualifier there's been like the it's always been there's always been something at the egyptian theater downtown um and so the last few years it's been the whitewater awards but before that was like the melt awards where it was just like film fest and so we're going to go back to that style and just do nfc film fest um because james held on to the whitewater awards um and so 
like that Thursday night at the Egyptian. That's such a fun, awesome part of the event. Um, and yeah, we just, yeah, we're just going to keep all that and then more fun stuff at the park, change some things with camping. Um, the format for next year is going to go back to how it was before the world championship aspect and more like we're going to do 10, the top 10 from the year before 10 invites and then 10 qualifiers on S turn again, um, instead of everybody qualifying. Um, and then also the, there's going to be a women's division. Um, so the winner from the previous year and then four qualifiers, um, that was part of the thing to keep with the event. And so, um, but yeah, everything's just going to stay the same. We're going to add some cool things. Like I'm really excited for a, a couple ideas that we had, like just some like games in the park, um, with like the festival and then just like kind of more kind of merchandise and kind of putting our own spin off that stuff. So it's, I mean, yeah, that's kind of how it's going to be for the next few years until it all just goes smooth and we get it, get it lined up to how we want and stuff. So backing up, you're going to have four women in the main category, like, like race. There, there's there's going to be five. So five. the winner, the winner, and then four are going to qualify. Okay. So I think that's cool. Yeah, so more more people racing than there has been just because, like, last year there were 20 men and five women, and then before it was 30, 30 men before the women's division. So we'll add a few more spots there, but want to include as many as many people and the people that should be paddling and, um, yeah, get the, get the field how we want it. So. Well, man, I was super psyched when I heard you guys were taking it over and that it was going to go on. It's The events are such a important part of kayaking you know and i'd hate to see that one drop off the radar so good on you yeah that that was that was exactly how we felt like like north fork is by far my my favorite weekend of the year and it's what i look forward to and train for all the time like so yeah last year after the event like because last year was a tough one for me because um like a month and a half before i had dislocated my shoulder for the second time um and so I was like devastated that I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to race, but I just got this massive shoulder brace and cranked it down tight and, um, was able to qualify and make the event, but wasn't just the moves. I wasn't able to pull and do what I needed to. And so I had my, like, one of my worst finishes in the main race. And then with it being done like that, I was just like, I remember when the awards were going, I was just devastated, like sitting on this, like, it was like this unicorn inner tube on the ground. And I was just like laying with my head back. Like it was just awful. <laughs> like I, I was so bummed for so long. Um, but then, yeah, once they took it over, I was definitely nervous and it's a big, big task. And, um, Oh yeah. Def- so nervous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's going to be good there with the full handoff and stuff. And then like, it's pretty even evenly split with like the stuff I'm working on. And then my mom, cause a lot for a lot of it she did a lot of graphic design and building websites and um a lot of marketing stuff and so and she like really likes organizing events so she's i mean she's probably the biggest the biggest motor behind behind this whole thing so um yeah that's that's awesome man i was gonna i wanted to ask you how your shoulder is doing you're pretty yeah it's 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 really good i'm really happy with it i'm in just over eight and a half months since I got surgery. So, um, Damn, that's it. Wow. You're charging. Yeah. Eh? 
yeah it i mean for the whole the whole time it it felt pretty good like because i yeah i got um i got surgery at the end of september um with a local guy here in boise who's awesome like tons of kayakers have gone to him and um yeah i was actually pretty crazy with my shoulder because like typically you know when people dislocated their shoulders from a high brace or whatever um but where i actually hurt mine the first time was on alexandra two years ago um just tucking up and taking the hit my shoulder was super sore for like two months and then um it didn't actually dislocate until chile off tres altos in october 2018 i guess and so what got, got an mri and it just was like small small little tear but pt that's what they recommended and so did that and then it came out like six months later in jake's at like four grand mm. that's like not like not nightmare <laughs> like one of the scariest stories i've ever heard yeah <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, yeah um and then yeah just kind of all summer i was like all right i'm getting surgery in the fall and then went and got an mri again just to see and it wasn't really showing that much but basically what the doc did is he his name's Dr. Curtin. Um, he's just like, if you feel comfortable, he's like, you've tried to PT and do all this. So he's like, if you feel comfortable with it, um, I'll just go in there and fix what needs to be fixed. Cause he couldn't quite tell what was up. But so what actually happened, which is crazy is it wasn't like a labrum or rotator cuff. It was the like capsule that surrounds the joint. So, which is just like connective tissue. And I had a hole, I had like a tear in the back of it. And so every time it would come out, it would, it's when I would go across my body and rotate like this. And so it would pop out the back. Um, and then it would like, I would try to put back in, nothing would happen. And then like, <laughs> like two months or like two minutes later, it would s slip back in. Um, but all I did was four little sutures in there and good to go. It, it's a super rare injury, like a lot of like offensive linemen, football and wrestlers and um yeah just hard impacts across your body like that so i think it's it definitely i think was better than a labrum where they have to drill into the bone and like reattach everything so it's felt good like whole pt process was was great and my pt was super good and everything felt easy just like taking it step by step and um yeah so all good now That's awesome. thankfully yeah <laughs> what's your paddle length and feather hmm <laughs> I was wondering if that was going to come up. <laughs> this is a litmus uh, test right here. We'll see yeah. if this interview makes it to yeah, yeah, or not. Yeah, we'll see if we ever come back on the show right here. <laughs> yeah. I use a, a 20330. Money. Boop, boop. All right. All right. Yeah. And then, okay. yeah, straight, straight shaft. And then for play boating, I use a 200 bent 30. So. Sweet. Yeah. 200 and over, man. It's all good with me. Yeah, I'll, uh, tell me about the last few weeks in, in Idaho. It seems like there's been plenty of water and people around. Have you guys been just crushing out the high water North Fork Labs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's been awesome. So, like, early this spring, I mean, until until the North Fork turned on two weeks ago, it was, like, 800 CFS for three three months. Like, the reservoir was super low. I didn't, I didn't paddle it until June just because I was, I didn't really feel like paddling North Fork 800 anymore. I used to do it all the time, but now I'm kind of spoiled and <laughs> would rather go, I'd rather go do South Fork or something when it's low. Um, 
but so I was spending a lot of time like up on the south fork of the Clearwater, like Golden Canyon section, and that's that's just like a super good thing to have. Kind of, it's like four hours north, um, but it's really similar to the North Fork. It comparable flows, a little more natural features, um, but it gets high every year, which is awesome. So that's definitely a good thing to hit up if you're wanting some high water Idaho boating. Um, and then Hayden and I, we went, we, we went down to Cali and got two laps on fantasy, which is super sick. Um, and then we were planning on staying in Cali for a bit, but then I got off fantasy and it was pretty low. Our second lap and saw the North fork is at five grand with a lot of rain coming. I was like, Hayden, we're going home. Like <laughs> it's, it's too good. Um, and so we, yeah, came back and, and pal and just started getting laps and convinced like Johnny Chase and Tad Dennis to come up. And so the four of us have just been doing lots of laps, but, um, so that's been super good. But like my second day boating on the North Fork, um, we were putting on the top at like, it was like 5,000 and, um, yeah, a guy, a guy swam out of the nut, um, which is like one of the worst places swims. And the day before actually, I like did a boof and houndstooth and just like landed really hard and got some whiplash in my neck and it was like kind of sore, but not too bad. Just, I don't know, kind of waterfall neck, but just got a little jar, jarring landing. But then the next day I ended up below Nutcracker and then like, as soon as he swam out of the hole, I just like ran him over and just told him to hold on to my boat and hold on. It's like after Nutcracker, for people that don't know, it's like a mile or two of just continuous nonstop north fork boogie water which is class five um like like 20 miles per hour you're going like 20 <laughs> miles per hour through that yeah totally and so i just had him on the back of my boat and i was just like paddling the whole thing and paddled him all the way down to disneyland and then also got his paddle and his boat out of the water um <laughs> were you making him lunch or anything when doing this? <laughs> yeah it was like yeah it was just like a chill boogie board ride down like <laughs> going on a riverboard the north fork i'm your man um but uh yeah so he was all good um but then like five minutes later when i got back in my boat my neck just like seized up like super super bad and like couldn't move it for like a week so i was so i was out of paddling i was like oh, I, I was so mad like <laughs> stupid whiplash off of one of the sickest booths on the river and then saving someone took me out for a week but all good like yeah i had to take a week off but i've been going getting lots of laps since then so it's been good sick dude yep Yep. man north fork it's on so is there a big crew out there is it just all the local boys right now there there's quite a few there um a lot of the klcg boys they were they were out here they like jeremy nash and not sure who all went, but they're going to Middle Kings right now. It's going to be really low, but I didn't want to go. It's too low for me. But um, yeah, so they were out here, and then yeah, people passing through. Good, like solid local crew, and but yeah, Banks is Banks is full. Tons of people to paddle with, but um, yeah, having Johnny and Tad here was pretty sweet. Just to go up with the four of us, with Hayden and just do T to Bs, and yeah, just do it that way. So it's been it's been good. Good, thanks, living. Sick. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on the show and filling everybody in about the North Fork Championship. Super, yeah, of course. Uh, super stoked to see how it all unfolds, and good on you, dude. 
good on you, man. I think uh, I think that was a good decision, and I hope that I can make it out next year. Yeah, you should. Yeah, so. anybody that hasn't been there before should definitely try to make it out. Obviously, but obviously promoting it. But it's I'm actually pretty excited because like this year I was stoked because the feeling that I have is that people are going to be super excited that it was just like continuing in the first place after the rumor mill going around that it was going to be done. But now with a year off, like kind of have some time to really get things lined up. And then with everyone just being stoked to get back together and by that time, hopefully. So should be a good year. Really excited for it. Well, it sounds like you got it handled, but if there's anything I can help with, feel free to reach out. I remember talking to James back when he was originally starting it and just going over ideas and it's just sick to see it. See it. See yep. it carrying on. Yep, totally. I'll hit, take you up on that. It's a thing. Yep. All right, Alec, you guys got anything for Alec before we let him go? That's it. All right, man. Well, we'll see you on the river, dude. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sounds dude. good. Yep. Yeah. Thank you Have so much. Yep. Later. Later. Well, boys, we're at an hour and 40 minutes in. I guess we should wrap this thing up with a little bit of rants and raves. No viewer mail for the first time ever. We've got some viewer mail, but I knew we weren't going to have time for it, so we can pack it in later. Now for everybody's favorite segment of the show, our segment here, (laughs) rants and raves. Oh, uh, Lewis! Months to not think of anything. Lewis, you have to have something, dude. I mean, seriously, there has to be something. Lead us off, Lewis. I gotta lead us off. Lead us off. I can lead us off if you want. Uh, I, I have a lot. I just think it feels like so. Uh, you can it's have a lot of pressure when we haven't ranted. It's like I have to rant about the thing that's pissed me off the most in the last six months. <laughs> well, you can rant and about two or three things. I mean, come on, we're at an hour and forty. You know. I'm going to rant about, oh man, it's just all the same things over and over again. One of the things I would like to rant about is people biking with external speakers. Oh God, dude. Do it's, not do that. It's becoming it's a, a thing, phone. dude. It is so obnoxious. If there's anything more obnoxious than that, I'm hard pressed to think of it. Like nobody wants to listen to your like shitty tinny music. Like, on the trails like just stop like if you have to do that like get headphones like inexcusable no that's such a weird statement i mean are people doing that so they can hear people around them it's like a safety thing i mean maybe somewhat i mean it's just like to me it's like it's i just can't imagine just going out into the world with like so little regard for the effect that my presence would have on other people you know, it's like, are you just like totally oblivious to other people or like you just think that people don't care and like it's just all. It's, it's like loud motorcycles. Loud pipes save lives, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll second that. That is it's it's a it's a trend that's on the increase right now, too. You see it skiing for sure. You just might as well write asshole on your helmet. <laughs> right. I agree. I agree. I, I am fully in support of that rant, 100%. You can go into a second one if you'd like, Lewis, or we can come back around you. We can, we can do seconds. Here Just keep want. going until we've got everything <laughs> off of our chats. I'll let, I'll let well go. Can we, can we stop using emojis? <laughs>
Now what? Now I know. I know when you send me the thing with your eyes squirting, laughing, that you're not, and it's insincere. <laughs> and you're not laughing. It's it's just stupid. There's no. Is it, is, is it is just dumb? Is it that specific emoji or just emojis in general? It's just dumb. I don't get it. It's like, uh, yeah, I, no, just stop. Just stop. Hmm. That one hasn't vexed me. I don't know. I can kind of see it. I mean, definitely people communicate you, with me now with like 100s, like showing muscles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It's just so empty. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think Facebook? Do you think Facebook's on its way out? We were noticing the other day how little traffic we get on Facebook versus like Instagram, for instance. They're the same thing. I know, but in terms of like a platform, you know, I, don't, oh, I realize it's the same company. Oh, oh, oh. Like I think a lot of people genuinely are just throwing in the towel on Facebook. I quit like two years ago. I don't really miss it. The only time I really miss it is when I want to buy or sell something because it sort of supplanted Craigslist in a lot of ways, it seems like. Yeah. I don't know. It's a pay-to-play. I don't know. It just the, the, Can I go into my rant? Yeah, please. Okay, because my rant, I'm going to rant about the media. Okay. Oh, and Facebook, Facebook is right in there. And see, you guys, yeah. are, you guys think I'm going to rant about like – what the media is saying, the what Times. they're putting out there, um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I, I'm more going to rant about the monetary model of the media versus the media itself. So in the media, you know, I used to work for a group of TV and radio stations before I got into producing media myself and the whole nine yards. But in the media, you have a classic rock station and you do that because you know the demographic that's going to listen to that. So your sales team can go and sell the advertising to the Harley dealership and you have your soft rock station. So the ad team can look at the demographics and go sell. First, first the... of all, I should, for, for about two thirds of our audience, I should point out that radio was something we used to listen to <laughs> in your cars and it, it was broadcast through a tower and you had these things called rock stations, <laughs> which I know don't exist anymore. So, but as a business during that time, they were very successful. So go ahead. But let me back. <laughs> let me back up because what you're talking about with Facebook is the exact same thing. So, if you Facebook creates these groups and these echo chambers and whatnot, so an advertiser can target the people in that group. You know, it does no good if you're selling paddle sports gear to a 25 year old to spend money to send ads to a 60 year old woman or vice versa you know the digital era allows you to do that and pinpoint more so but what happens is it, it, it's become a race to the bottom and facebook has seen it instagram's going to see it all the free advertising you're going to see it because what they're doing is they're not doing something nefarious fox isn't saying what its headlines are to be nefarious they're they're trying to make money off of that model and that model is just it sucks there's and it's i think we've even talked about this on the show i'm just going to rant think... about the model of 
the model of advertising. There has to be a better way for publishers, creators of content to make money than advertising. That's just it's a like shit way for the business to operate. It's such an interesting conversation, Grace. Like I feel like this it's like it's like almost like there's just like too much information and too much ability to like segment your audience and like track how much people are, you know, how people are responding to things. And it's like, you see it in politics too, right? Like there's no market for just like genuine leadership. It's like, everything is like poll tested and like demographically split and you know exactly who you have to reach, how you have to reach them, what you have to say to that group. And it just like cuts out, you know, what's genuine. And it's like, you think about the same thing with news, right? It's like, it's like, you know, instead of just having, you know, editors telling people what they think is important, it's like, what's going to get clicks, what's going to like, you know, what's going to drive engagement with advertising. So, yeah, I don't but know. Describe subscription and paper media, you know? Right. All these brainiacs at these places, they have this great system of targeting ads. You, I, I look at a pair of astral shoes and I buy a pair of astral shoes. I proceeded to get served ads for astral shoes for six months. I bought the fucking shoes. You don't need to bother with this anymore. That happens all the time. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's retargeting. And, and it makes you mad at Astral. You're like, Astral, cut it out. Yeah. I do not need to see more rotating ads with Astral shoes anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It happens over and over. And I'm like, this isn't, who thinks this is working? Yeah. Well, that's pixel retargeting. That's a little different than what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking well, about is like, and I'm not even well, talking about things. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just being a dick. <laughs> What'd you say? I missed it. it I said, well, what I'm saying is important. <laughs> it is important. But, and now I'm not just talking about news stations because you're, every bit is formatted to an audience, not just news. You know, you have your news that's formatted to an audience. And news is just like an antiquated radio station or just like a Pandora channel or various things. You know, the ads that come up on that, you know, the reason they f- – that content is formatted is so an advertiser can actually touch the people they need to. And it's just a race to the bottom. It becomes this reverberation chamber. The advertising business model is a race to the bottom and it's never been so evident. You listen to uh, that podcast, um, New York times podcast. I haven't. No. Yeah. Hello. I did. That was really interesting. Sorry, sorry, cut out there. Um, yeah, it talks about how YouTube initially was, was you know, coming up with uh, video recommendations that were along the same lines of what people were already watching. And so if you start watching cat videos, they continue to serve you cat videos. Then they realized that wasn't really working. And so the, the, they brought in a bunch of AI guys to very carefully study how they could spiral out to include, include a much wider group of information to serve up in their recommended video list. And like, I mean, just as disturbing as, you know, the specifics of what that story lays out is just every time you look at social media, it's like you just got to remember that there are some like exceedingly smart people making a ton of money by just trying to figure out how to waste your time. Right. Like, my kids' is, time. Like, that is the metric, you know. My kids. <laughs> that is the metric. It is. It is, it, it is an it is an unwinnable battle to bat to have your kids not watch YouTube. You cannot. It's it's unbelievably addictive yeah right yeah and, and that just goes back to there's no value there's so little value that you're getting out of that and you're just stuck in this reverberation chamber and they have to they have to do that or they can't make money off of selling ads it makes no sense to to 
for someone who's looking to buy an ad and target a specific audience about a product or service when they don't know who that audience is. And so it, where's where's our cut of all this is the real important question. Yeah, how does this come back to us and, and yeah. the Hammer Factor? Like, how does this involve <laughs> APEC <laughs> specifically? Dude, I gotta we gotta get to the bottom of your Apex Watercraft fascination. I think it's great because I, I want to have EJ on, and I'm slowly building a a ground swell of of support within the Hammer Factor audience to have EJ come on and talk about this. I would. Love he'll come it. on. He'll he'll come on. I bet. I'll bet you hundred bucks. I get him on. I would love on. to see a Ferrari of kayaks come out there. You know, in, in fishing. In 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 all. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a kayak fisherman, so I really can't speak to what they're thinking. But, um, I mean, do you think? I mean, a, a, a composite whitewater boat's not a great idea. People would pay for it. It's totally viable. God, I would love to see it. I would love. It's to not see viable. It. I mean, not as a not as a business venture, but like you could make a sick composite boat that you could run the shit in. Can I go into a rave? Wait, who? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's get EJ on to talk about this. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna buy a boat. If he comes out with a whitewater boat, I'm gonna buy it. What do you got, Lewis? No, I'm done. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. We're done talking about Geltman's quarantine. We can talk about or uh, Geltman. Have you been quarantining? Talk about with... Geltman's shelter and place plan for the past couple months. Yeah. Who have you been? Tight. Have you been quarantining alone or with someone else? How does that work? Uh, I'm done. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for listening to the Hammer Factor. Uh, I didn't even talk to you about going through all the LVMs. I went through all the LVMs, took, bought this $25 camcorder off of eBay, and ripped them yeah. from all the old tapes. Talk about some You have to worry about table. music? What do you mean? Like, can you, can you sell these things? What's the plan? Oh, they're all online right now. You can, you can see, watch you you could watch every single LVM online. Every, every single LVM is on Vimeo right now. It's twenty dollars to see every single one of them. How about music? There's got to be some music in there that's questionable. No, all the music we ever used in LVM was licensed. You, but how about going back to like the Daniel and Spencer days? I nobody's nobody's flagged us yet. Yeah, <laughs> but it was nuts. I mean, you know, we used to have to capture the tape in real time do these drop frames. I mean, it was a crazy experience putting all those tapes in and I would just have them running on the other computer in the background. And all of a sudden I'd hear like somebody's voice. I Jason hadn't heard, or, or, like, <laughs> you know, hearing Charlie Beaver's voice, dude, the, the original um, big gun show weld of you yeah. and Kara, when you guys got the, the announcer girl who was in the bikini and the cowboy boots and just running around with hula hoops and all that, dude. What a grand era of kayaking, man. Different, different era for sure. Ah, oh, dude. I mean, it was a blast from the past. Places I had even forgot I went. There were places legitimately. I was like, holy shit, that's me. And I was like, I <laughs> totally forgot I was in that country. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, it was certainly good talking to you guys. You know, I didn't get to tell my story about how I called Weld. He was like, I'm out. Good luck. <laughs> and he hung up on me. I was like, okay, we'll do a hammer factor later. <laughs> I was full PPE at the time. Yeah. And then I had a great interview with Darcy Geicher about her Amazon trip and, and, uh, writing a book, which kind of got me inspired to write a book. I think you should write a book, Weld. Mm, I me. think I think you could write a good book. About what? 
uh, just about memoirs. Memoirs of a. It'd be like a Confederacy of Dunces meets Paddle Sports. You find it in leave? my attic long after I'm dead. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it'll like resurface as some like valuable, yeah. you know, tidbit of knowledge. Anyway. Geltman bailed. That's it for Geltman. Should we talk about Geltman while he's not here? This is a good opportunity to talk about Geltman because there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> Some hot gossip. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. <sighs> Two hours. Get that thing passed, Lewis. You got one job. Get the house to vote. And on to Hooters. Ugh, fuck. That bad, huh? Thanks for listening right. to Hammer Factor. Send us your emails, send us your messages, and uh, we'll be back for our Christmas recording. Ciao.